We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you. Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast, a special edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast, a COVID-19 edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. Paul Shaughnessy joined on the phone by Cody Safdick, as usual. Uh, just kind of a, it's been such a whirlwind of crazy craziness all around. We're talking private islands, we're talking Habib stuck in Russia, like a bunch of fights like Greg Hardy and stuff like that. We're going to NATO reserves now. Like it's a, as they like to say in this type uh, time of day, it's a fluid situation. Cody Safdick. Uh, how are you doing during these times? Yeah, I think everybody's in the same boat, right? Everyone's trapped at home. And I see there's a lot of media members still doing their content and doing their shows and figuring out different ways to deliver a product. And so for us, yeah, we're definitely going to do a, a more in-depth show closer to the event where we'll fully break down the card. But it's just nice to get on the airways and talk about something. I know a lot of people just don't really have a whole lot to do. So if listening to a podcast-style uh, chat show, which obviously we're going to talk about the fights as you're saying, then yeah, we're glad to bring it to you. But yeah, as far as I'm concerned, uh, like I still get to do the horses in the morning. But yeah, it's just like a different world, you know, like you're still living in it. It's just everyone seems less trustworthy of each other. Like, yeah, I'll still go take a walk around the neighborhood, but you'll see people like eyeing you down. You see when, oh, there's a couple cars in the driveway, people are like, oh, what's going on there? Like, I don't know why everyone's so vigilant all of a sudden. It's like, let's just chill out, man. We're all human beings. But yeah, honestly, it could be worse. Like, I don't feel that bad. I feel more like the dude from the Big Lebowski than somebody who's a, a prisoner of his own home. Yeah, fair. I know what you mean. Um, yeah, it's like if you if you happen to sneeze in public right now, I saw like Mad Lab MMA tweeted about this. If you sneeze in public right now, it's like you just took a shit in the middle of the street. And it's kind of true. Like people would be mortified. And I guess, you, you well, know, of course, we don't know everybody's story. Some people could have elderly and uh, immunocompromised people back at home and all that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, everyone's trying to do it a day at a time. And I feel I feel like the pointing fingers and 
all of that is probably not healthy for everybody. No, and touching up on Mad Lab's point, it's a great point, is that me, myself, I actually used to sneeze in public in order to cover up the, the fart. Now I'm actually <laughs> farting in public to cover up the sneeze. You know what I mean? Rolls are reversed. You got to watch yourself out there. You got to. <laughs> but yeah, like it's just like the, the the heightened sense of vigilantism, I guess. Like I don't know why people are calling the cops on each other because someone's at the park. But I too, do totally get that. <clears throat> the sooner that everyone just, I guess, adheres to the guidelines, the sooner we can get back to regular life, and everyone just wants to go back to regular life. So I do understand that. But yeah, it's amazing how uh, two months ago our biggest problem is. Who makes a better chicken sandwich? Is it the chicken filet or whatever the hell the restaurant's called? Or is it Popeye's chicken? Who makes a better chicken sandwich? Oh, the new lid from Tim Hortons? What a piece of shit. I'm going to go on Twitter and complain about it. And now it's just like, what about all that? None of that matters. So irrelevant. Well, now, well, now <clears throat> so, if you're... Yeah, it's now, nice to get the normalcy. Now if you're bragging about your favorite chicken sandwich, people are like, why are you having chicken sandwiches? Stay the fuck at home. Um, let's, let's get off, (laughs) let's get off of this topic though. Um, and on to, all right. So you, you can explain a little bit further to me. I, I'm not up to, up to speed, I guess on Lenore, which is, I believe where they hold Tachi Palace, if I'm correct. Um, uh, so a venue that you are very, very familiar with. Um, yeah. Tell the, tell the people about what's going on before we talk about Fight Island, which is, which is both crazy and kind of awesome. Yeah, so we're definitely starting to jump into the realm of uh, the movie world with some of these plans that are going into place, which, hey, by all means, I love it. You can get fights out to the airwaves. I'm all for it. But yeah, Lamore, California, Tachi Palace fight. I mean, for anybody who's been following my career for a long time, like Tachi was my go-to. They'd have Thursday night shows. Their shows always live stream on SureDog. I mean, you can go on again. Who else is airing Thursday night fights? And uh, I mean, good cards. And it would always be prospects from Southern California, guys that are just working their way up. I mean, yeah, UFC veterans like Cody Gibson and them would fight there. Joaquin Spirit, well, longtime fan favorite. <clears throat> Obviously, uh, you know, form a lot of former WEC guys. Um, it, it was a good organization for up-and-comers. You'd get some, like, AG veterans, and you get some guys on their way up, but that's about as much as it was. But it was very, very, very fun fight. So, I mean, I was always a big fan of Tachi Palace fights. The biggest thing is that they operated on, on casino land, right? So it used to actually be Tachi, or it was... Um, before it was Tachi Palace fights, it was just palace fights, and mm-hmm. they would have them on the reserve. And then eventually it became Tachi Palace because of the casino change branding, a little more California. And again, yeah, they, they don't go by the standard code of the California State Athletic Commission. They can use those guys, but if those guys say, hey, we, we're not in favor of this show, I mean, it's tribal law. And so my longtime girlfriend, um, Christina, we've been together five years, she's Native American, and she belongs to a band out in Nova Scotia. And so like, I'm, she worked at the the Canadian Women's Native Resource Center in Toronto. So, like, I'm very familiar with Native law. And, yeah, no, you don't want them to have it, and they do. That's it. You know, like, it's their land. Like, we signed mm-hmm. the treaty agreement. Like, if they want to go ahead with it, they're going to. And looking at it from their perspective, I mean, these bands are also trying to come up with ways to provide for their for their band members, right? A lot of these band members don't work anyways. And a lot of these people are, you know, they're stuck in the reserve. Uh, they're, they're, a lot of them are saying, hey, we don't want you to leave the reserve. So let chief and council know what you guys need. We'll bring the supplies to you. They're doing a great job trying to take care of their own people. But, I mean, just like any group of people, it's like we need income. The casino is currently closed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, where can you get a little bit of income? Well, Dana and his crew roll into town. And, by the way, I'm sure it wasn't just let's go straight to Tachi. I'm like, I'm sure they went to Oklahoma. Like, I'm sure they, they asked around a couple of the reserves that Kansas would have probably let them do it as well. Definitely Oklahoma, though. 
uh, and then, then you settle on Tachi. The ironic part here is that every single Tachi Palace fight card that has ever happened has featured a couple American Kickboxing Academy prospects on it, right? If you take the I-5 North, it's a two-hour and 45-minute drive from San Jose, California to Tachi. So Khabib ending up in Russia is the biggest kick in the ball. Mm-hmm. But we're getting an awesome replacement, so I'm looking at it on the positive side. Yeah. Um, I guess we should touch on the Khabib thing, too. It's just like, in fairness to him, and I see a lot of people are just, you know, they're like, oh, he's running, he's scared. It's just like, if you actually think that, you're you're absolute, <laughs> you're absolutely absurd. The guy is in California. California is getting locked down. In San Francisco, the entire Bay Area was getting shut down. He goes, shit, like, what, what should I do? So he decides to jump onto a plane. To go to the well, Middle Dane East. Dane advises him. So yeah, Dane part. advises him to go to the Middle East. And then when he's in the Middle East, then Russia, because Russia didn't have anything locked down. Then Russia's saying, well, we're going to lock down the borders. And he's going, well, like, my family's there. You don't know how long any of this is going to take on. But you have to put yourself in that guy's shoes. And I think that's what Khabib said. It's like, you have to put, like if he d- never got to see his family again because he tries to get back for this like who who knows you know it's a crazy world that we're living in right now so if you think that Habib is afraid of any 155 pounder on earth like you're insane also I want to say um you know there's going to be people who have very very uh hard stances on whether or not this card should go on um we're not going to be the guys as we said with the cage warriors that we're not going to be the guys to complain if if things get pulled, if if something gets in the way of it going on, but as long as there are fights to bet on, I will be betting on fights, and we will be here giving you advice on who we think you should bet on or who we are betting on for said fights. So I don't know if you if yeah, you, came, if you exactly. came here for like oh my god I can't believe that the UFC is doing this like we're not the podcast for you. There are plenty of other outlets out there. Um, giving you that information. I'm not an expert on any of this, any any medical any medical stuff, uh, how the virus spreads, you know, like I, I, real, I, I realize that it would be a lot safer for the fights to not go on, of course, but uh, I'm not going to stand in the way of people who want to sign the dotted line and do this making money. So I guess I'm an eternal... Yeah, I'm an eternal uh, – uh, sorry, you were, you, I lost my train of thought there. You go. No, no. I mean I hear what you're saying. It's just like we're not the moral police on this. We can't really give our stance. But, again, when I look at, say, if you want to go to Costco, right? So it's like, oh, man, Costco is a big building. It's like, oh, how many people are in Costco? It's like, oh, well, they're trying to limit it. Normally there's two, 300 people in Costco, but they're limiting it to 100 people. It's like, well, man, how many people work in Costco? It's like – a hundred employees at any one time are in the building. So you mean to tell me there's a big building with 200 people in it walking around doing their business and it's not considered unsafe. It's like, no, because they're just going grabbing groceries and they're minding to themselves. It's like, okay, well there's 200 people in this one singular building. And then, and then on top of that, it'll be well, like, like oh, groceries, by the way, six, six people here. Yeah. Yeah. Groceries and combat sports are two different things. Of course. Like no, one, right, right. one is I'm, a lot, one is a lot more, uh, you know, essential for people to get by. We don't necessarily need this. We would like to have these fights. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not comparing them in that one's essential and that yeah, of course, food's the number one necessity and one is a luxury. We want to watch people punch and kick each other in the face because we're sitting at home bored. Even if we weren't sitting at home bored, you and I would still like to watch it. 
But I mean, the world's trying to maybe put that extra bit of pressure on them to like, hey, get these fights going, get these fights going. We want someone to watch. I'm just saying that the risk is the same, right? It's the same thing with they're trying to get horse racing back going, and it's just like, hey, man, maybe we should maybe we should stop this. It's like, okay, okay, you know what? Let's let's roll by the rules. But these horses are on training centers, right? And those training centers are deemed essential because it's agriculture. People got to go in and feed these horses. People got to go and race these horses. So I'm thinking about it the other day, and I'm like. Man, uh, let's look at First Line Training Center as an example, right? There's 125 horses on the ground. There's 85 to 100 grooms, drivers, trainers on the ground. These guys go in every day. They take the horse out. They harness it. They jog it around the track. They put it back in the stall. They give it a bath. They call it a day. How is that any different than I took my horse to the track, dug it out, harnessed it up, raced around the track, gave it a bath, took it home. There's no difference, right? It's the perception of, well, you can't have more than five people together. It's the same thing with the fire ban. There's a fire ban in Ontario right now, right? <clears throat> They're saying, well, geez, you can't have a fire because what if the fire rages out of control and all of a sudden the firefighters get called? Well, they got to practice social distancing too. We can't have four or five uh, cars on the road with all these people checking out this fire because now, now you're breaking the social distancing. Motherfucker, I've been having fires for 25 years in my backyard and you're going to tell me it's going to rage out of control and burn something down? It's a precautionary measure. But at what point do you think the precautionary measure might not be justified? At what point is it a little too much? If you do it in this reserve in Lamar, California, listen, I mean, again, I was just talking about how the Native Americans were worried about other people coming into the reserve and bringing it in. Well, now they're letting Dana and show come in with, you know, cameras and lights and fighters and maybe money does talk. Maybe they're putting aside their morals because they're looking at us as a business agreement. But again, Dana knows if I go there and I get some people sick and this thing blows up, it's really going to be bad. However, if we go in there and, like they said, double the medical staff and test everybody and make it a small group of people, I don't understand why they've went with 12 fights on this card. I think you could have reduced it to 8 to 10 fights, especially if you're selling it as a pay-per-view. the fuck cares about the undercard, right? People are going to buy it for the five card pay-per-view, yeah, hopefully. From... I mean, there's another thing. Tough times right now. Are people going to spend 70 bucks on this? I don't know. But yeah. yeah, you didn't have to say I need 24 fighters on the card. You could have gone with a little bit less and just kind of, <clears throat> you know, minimize some of that risk. But again, I'm again, I, I'm not the medical professional, just like you alluded to. So who am I to sit here and give like an accurate opinion? This is my opinion. Well, let's get into the actual fight. So uh, so we don't have to talk about any of that stuff anymore. We can pretend there's some normalcy here. So we've got Justin Gaethje stepping up and in. Taking on Tony Ferguson in the main event. Obviously, Ferguson was getting ready for Habib. He's been training for this fight forever, it seems. Um, <laughs> Gaethje, we don't really know what he was doing. Kind of coming off the couch, there is an interview of him saying that he didn't really know if he would take the fight if he was put given the opportunity. So that kind of leads me to believe that the guy's in really not much shape. He's actually another interview that he had. He was saying that um, he's got about he's got about sixteen minutes, sixteen minutes of fury, he, sixteen to twenty minutes of fury. So he de- he he basically said that he is concerned if this gets into like round four, round five. He is concerned about competing against Ferguson, who has shown no ability to tire whatsoever. Uh, initial thoughts on this here. Yeah, and initial thoughts is I got to go with Tony Ferguson being that uh, this is, see, this is a very strange card because normally when we break down cards, it's like we're always talking about this guy had a camp switch and this guy 
oh, geez, it looks like he was on vacation three weeks ago. And then this guy, oh, geez, it looks like, you, you know, you can go by their social media and get a grasp of, like, how good's training camp been going. Now it's you, – you have <laughs> no idea, Paul, no idea. No. You have no so. idea. Like, in Gaethje's case, like you alluded to, at least he's gone on record to been like, you know, I wasn't doing much. But even when he says, no, 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 I'm still going to the gym, I've got Trevor Whitman, I've got one of my striking coaches, and I've got Drew Dober. That's it. So he's effectively training with one single guy. Drew Dober. Drew Dober, a, he's a hellraiser. Drew Dober is nothing like Tony Ferguson. So I get it would have been very hard to find someone like Ferguson regardless, but at least you could have worked with your Neil Magnies of the world that are in your camp who have some of that length, that they can all they can all show you one little thing that Ferguson does, and then you can tie it all together over the course of 8 to 12 weeks of preparation and go in and give it to this guy. But you don't have that, right? So in that in itself, and everybody's going to have a crazy camp, the thing with Tony Ferguson, Tony Ferguson kind of always just does his own thing, right? You never see these tapes of Ferguson going hard in the gym with sparring partners or training partners. Of course, he has all those guys. But he does a lot of like personal dynamic work. He does a lot of like, strength and conditioning. He does a lot of like <clears throat> different uh, movement drills. So it's like I don't doubt that this guy, who's you know not trying to take a shot at anybody of the mental health community, but like he's batshit crazy. Like no doubt this guy was training day in day out because that's what he does. Now he's getting a little bit older, 37 years old. I really did want to see him versus Khabib because I do feel it's the number one, two, number one and two guys in the world. Sorry, 36 years old. But again, Ferguson is starting to get a tad bit older and eventually someone is going to be able to capitalize on that. We've seen guys almost capitalize on that. Landon Venata, obviously that one round wonder where he, uh, he hurt Ferguson a couple times. And then Anthony Pettis, where he had, mm-hmm. again, one crazy round where he hurt Tony Ferguson a couple times. Justin Gaethje's laying it on the table. I'm coming out here to hurt Tony Ferguson in the first couple rounds. It's the yeah. same It's the same thing because maybe he doesn't believe I'll be able to beat this guy over the course of 25 minutes, but this guy can get hit. He is hittable. He can get hurt. He can get wobbled. If I just go pour the pressure on him right away maybe i take this guy out but then i go back to the fact that he has i see people always say the guy's got a bad chin he's been hurt he's been wobbled he's been dropped but he hasn't been knocked out is that a bad chin or is that a good chin yes he's being stuck but his ability to take that punch and then come back to and like you alluded to he doesn't he doesn't know how to get tired he can't get tired and like that's the exact two things those are the exact things that broke lando vanad and anthony pettis the guys that did have success is even if you do hurt him he yeah. just keeps coming and the pace, and the pace is so high that that you're going to get tired. The, the pace is so high. And listen, Justin Gaethje is the epitome of fan favorite. How could you not like this guy? How could anybody not like this guy? And so my dad and I, we've been watching him for a while. Actually, I, I got my first exposure to him. He beat uh, Dan Lozon for World Series of Fighting. But before that, he beat my boy Drew Fickett back in the day. And it was just like, oh, man, like maybe this guy's going to be a, a top prospect. Took a Fickett in like 12 seconds. He was 5-0. and Since then, it's just... Fight, like people remember him from his UFC tenure where he's winning fight of the year. You look back at any of his World Series of Fighting fights, they're all they're all fight of the nights. They're all fight of the year candidates. So my dad asked me the other day, he says, oh, man, I'd love Gaethje. I, I think it's going to be a better fight, him coming in for Khabib. I said, I don't know. I really, everyone wanted the Khabib fight. But you're right. Khabib is ultra entertaining 80% of the time. And then the other 20% of the time, he just he's so dominant. You, you don't get the greatest fight. Gaethje is entertaining 100% of the time. Oh, every, every time. Tony yeah. Ferguson... Tony Ferguson is exciting 100% of the time. So would you want a pure exciting guy versus a mostly exciting guy? Two pure exciting guys. So my dad poses the question. He says, oh, geez, I don't remember Gaethje's loss. He's not a hardcore fan. Obviously. He says, I don't remember Gaethje's losses. Who are the two guys to beat him? I said, Eddie Alvarez, Justin Poirier. He says, oh, I remember. Those are both fight of the year, weren't they? I said, yeah. He says, how did he lose those? Both times. It's a pressure game, right? He comes at you with everything. Mm-hmm. You come him 
with with everything. The guys that can't stand up to what he's delivering, they fold over. The guys that are able to withstand Justin Gaethje's pace and then bring it back and then some, he always, I don't want to say it falls apart. I don't want to say the wheels falls off. It's just the pace is so hectic. Mm-hmm. No human being, no mortal man can withstand that, and he's falling over. Now, it's important to know Eddie Alvarez takes him out late in the third. He's just too tired. He topples over. Well, knocked out, obviously, but he's, he's so tired. He topples over. Justin Poirier gets him in the fourth round. He's so tired. He topples over. And that three-fight winning streak, which has got him back in everybody's mind again. Vic, first-round knockout. Barbosa, first-round knockout. Cerrone, first-round knockout. So, again, the blueprint is there on Gaethje. He's going to try to put that pressure on you. He's going to try to take you out quick. He's going to have opportunities to do that to Ferguson because we have seen Ferguson get caught early in some fights before, yes. But I do, I do truly believe that <clears throat> that uh, it's going to play out longer. It's going to go Ferguson, maybe gets caught early, but keeps chugging forward, keeps you know just using that speed advantage, using that length advantage, touching this guy up, and then eventually we're going to see the fact that, geez, one guy hasn't been training for 12 weeks. One guy's been training for like three straight years getting ready for this opportunity. Like he's in the best shape he could possibly be. And we've seen him with Ferguson. The thing is, is like since that RDA fight in Mexico City at 10,000 feet altitude, like you can never doubt this guy's cardio in any situation ever. Like that guy, that that was the most impressive display of cardio I've ever seen from two guys. Yeah, I mean, when you consider that it's a mile high in the air and he threw threw 200 (laughs) significant strikes, like it was crazy. Yeah, and I remember Rafael Dos Anjos, who hadn't really shown to have cardio issues at the time. Uh, he keeps he, – it's, it's pace for pace the first two, three rounds. What secures that for Tony Ferguson? It's like the last two rounds, Ferguson is not even breathing heavy. And Rafael Dos Anjos, who has a lot of five-round title experience, is starting to get a little bit tired. So, yeah, I think we, we all give that advantage to Tony Ferguson. I, I want to touch back on what you had mentioned earlier about uh, the Khabib thing. A lot of people ripping on Khabib saying, oh, you know what, I can't believe he's running from this fight. And, uh, and, and, and you made mention of the fact that, you know, hey, it could be a family thing. This guy's got to see his family. He's got, he's got wife. He's got kids. He's got, you know, he's, his father, who seems to be his mentor and his idol. I mean, he's an older person. Like, wouldn't you rather want to be with your elder family members instead of training all by yourself in isolation in America? Like, I, I totally get it. I look at it more even though that's probably the reason. I look at it more on like a business side of things, right? If you're Khabib and you are the greatest, in my opinion, he is the greatest fighter to ever compete in mixed martial arts. He's got an undefeated professional record. He's passed virtually every test in flying colors. He is the man. He's better than John Jones. He's better than George St. Pierre. He's better than Cain Velasquez. He's better than anybody else you can come up with for who's the greatest of all time. He's the greatest of all time, right? And this guy is used to getting championship treatment. He gets 12 weeks camp he gets all the best training partners he's got islam makachev which he's got all this russian crew down there he's got a a host of american guys that are pushing to get him ready it's all eyes on khabib he gets ready for these fights now you're going to tell this guy hey listen you're the champ i'm gonna cut your training camp all these guys they can't come and train with you and and you know what we're still we're still gonna fight it's in new york but things are gonna be different and he accepts then you say you know what champ not gonna be in new york anymore it's gonna be in las vegas and he accepts then you tell them, geez, you know what? Not going to be in Las Vegas anymore. Probably going to be in Abu Dhabi. And still he accepts and goes to Russia. And then you tell him, oh, geez, not going to be in Abu Dhabi. Don't know where it's happening. Keep training. He's not, he's not a journeyman. He's not a guy that needs a paycheck. He's got a legacy. He's undefeated. Why, why would anybody in their right mind take a fight with these kind of circumstances when you're him, you don't have to. Other people have to. You don't have to. So yep. I completely agree with him saying, 
I'm not taking this. Now you flip sides to that to Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje has been chomping at the bit for a title fight for how long? He's been begging. And he's clearly the guy that deserves one. But because this Ferguson and Khabib fight kept getting canceled and then rebooked, and then Khabib fought somebody else, and then him and Ferguson gets rebooked, Gaethje's just sitting in the wings. He's chomping at the bit. He's not getting the million-dollar payday. He wants this. He wants this bad. No doubt he's motivated. It's that if he had been motivated for 10 weeks, we yeah. would get an optimal version of Justin Gaethje. And because he clearly, listen, Tony Ferguson relies on his wrestling a lot as well. He's not taking Justin Gaethje down. So yeah. now we got striker versus striker. Well, Gaethje has more power. Gaethje's got, I would, I would want to say, a better chin. And he's got his leg kicks. Tony Ferguson's got a bad knee. Like, there's a lot of variables for Gaethje. When he was plus 175 when he opened that, it's like, that's where the poke. I see money coming in on him now. The price is coming down. And now I'm dropping to reality of, like, this is a not insurmountable, but, like, this is a hell of a task to present for somebody. And he's taking it because he is a live-action fighter. This is what he does. He, this yeah. guy, went, the day that Justin Gaethje dies, hopefully it's not an MMA case, the day this guy dies, he's not going to heaven now. He's going straight to Valhalla because, I mean, he earned a fucking seat at the table. Like, he is war. He's not turning down this opportunity. But that could also be his detriment here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, what the, if you like Gaethje, you might as well. I see plus 230 out there by knockout. Um, I don't see him winning a five-round fight. I, I would take the extra. Uh, he's around, like, minus 155 out there. I would take the extra. The extra little bit and just get the knockout there if I want it. But I like Ferguson as well. The guy, was, yeah, he was training. I see a lot of people betting Gaethje right here. I see uh, a bunch of fighters and maybe the more casual kind of side of things. Um, not necessarily all betters, but I saw some like professional fighters picking Gaethje and stuff. Um, yeah, give me the guy who is training for his legacy fight who is in shape, has always been in shape, and probably, like, Tony Ferguson, you know there's the Tony Ferguson joke. Tony Ferguson's the kind of guy to contract coronavirus just to prove to everyone that he can get over it. Like, this guy's a, yeah, this guy's like, a maniac <laughs> when it comes to training. Like, he's up, he's probably up a Big Bear right now. Like, I mean, he, he's kind of up in isolation all the time. I don't think, I expect to see the best I've... Tony Ferguson. I do not expect to see the best Justin Gaethje, and that's unfortunate. Because I think Gaethje yeah. is a problem for any of these guys on any given night, but he's not coming in mm. in the best scenario by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I think I think you just nailed it. It's preparation. My last point I want to make on that is people were laughing at Tony Ferguson way ahead of the curve, man. People were laughing this motherfucker four or five weeks ago for wearing gloves at the press conference. Who's laughing now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It looks like Tony Ferguson figured it out. Yeah, but then he gave that ball to uh, Weili Zhang. Was he wearing gloves when he handed it to her? Yeah, but she wasn't. He's trying to Listen, give it. Listen, I'm not going to make the China. I'm not going to make the China joke. Yeah, do Don't not make, do not make that. Do not on. make that joke. Let's move on. We got uh, Greg Hardy taking on my boy, Jorgen DeCastro. The money train is coming into town. He's an underdog again against uh, this time Greg Hardy. Uh, Greg Hardy minus one eighty. Jorgen DeCastro, plus 168. What's your take here, Cody? Yeah, I'm really hoping this isn't the finalized bout order because, like, in what fucking absolute back-ass world does Francis Ngannou I think, I think ESPN... Has a prelim. I think ESPN probably wants... ESPN probably wants that. Ngannou was supposed to be on a free card. Maybe it's something to do with, like, contracts or something, right? That's what I'm thinking. Because, of course, of course, Francis Ngannou should be the co-main event. 
on this card. Yeah, course, no, dude, undoubtedly. And it's yeah. not even just like he should be he should be high up on the card because he's going to the fight's going to be crazy. I think we we all think this fight could go either way. Maybe it goes either way. Both guys have massive amount of power. It's going to it, hopefully it's not like the Derek Lewis fight. But this fight could be super exciting. It's more than that. It's the fact that if you ask almost anybody who's the number one contender in the heavyweight division, it's Francis Ngannou. The DC versus Stipe trilogy fight, waste of time, really. Like, yeah, we're going to watch it, and yeah, we're excited about it, but it's like the, the torch has been passed, man. I mean, it's time for Francis to get that second title shot, see how many improvements he's made. So on one hand, this is considered a state-busy fight for him. All he's got to do is win it, and he's going to get a title fight. On the other hand, it's an extremely dangerous state-busy fight. But to put that on the prelim and to put Greg Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro, I, I don't know. And then beyond that, listen, Vicente Luque versus Nico Price is pure violence. It's a great fight. Jeremy Stevens versus Calvin Cater is pure violence. It's a great fight. It's just Greg Hardy ain't fighting for no title anytime soon. Luque no. and Nico Price ain't fighting for no motherfucking title anytime soon. Calvin Cater and Jeremy Stevens ain't fighting for no motherfucking title anytime soon. Francis Ngannou is literally already knocking yeah. on the door and should, the door should open. That's why it hasn't, and he's going to have to take this one. But fuck, man, that's, that's definitely the co-main event. That's why I'm saying that. I, I guarantee it's like ESPN on their proper channel. They're just like, we want a good fight. We wanted, we were supposed to get Francis. We're getting Francis. So that's going to be the main event of the prelims, at least on the bed order that they release. Like, I don't. I mean, it makes more sense for him to be up there, but I could totally see ESPN being like, listen, man, we have no sports right now. We need something like, we don't want Vicente Luque versus Nico Price, which is a great fight, very exciting fight. They're like, we don't want to be putting that, you know, when they're doing all their promos and stuff for this event. They don't want to be pumping up that. They would rather have Francis Ngannou, the big, terrifying man, taking on the guy with the death touch, like... Well, yeah, back... no, no, no doubt about it. But it yeah. is, it is a talented yeah. card the whole way up and down. So you would think that they would be happy to take some of these other sure. fights. Like if you give me Jacare versus Uriah Hall as the featured prelim, I think that's a fucking awesome fight. But again, yeah, you're you're right, and you're definitely right because you uh, UFC when they sign that deal with ESPN, <clears throat> they put in the contract that they have to deliver no less than forty two events to mm-hmm. ESPN, or they don't cap their bonus. Right, and the bonus is seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Like that's not the bonus; that's the full payout of the contract mm-hmm. if they hit the forty-two events. And the UFC holding forty-two events is like a, as sure as a given as the sun rising tomorrow. <laughs> only this pandemic, nobody fucking saw this coming. Of course, that's the only possible way the UFC doesn't stage forty-two events for ESPN. So Dana's so buying a like, fucking oh. private island. Yeah, of course. Now it's like, well, they're renting the private house. Of course, you know what I mean. You know what, dude? The the show has to go on. And it's not like, man, these fighters got to eat. It's like, (laughs) I got to hit this targeted bonus. So, so, yeah. They spent a lot of money buying this organization, $4 billion. So you're kind of seeing the the desperation, I suppose you can say right now. Anyway, let's get back to the actual fights rather than. So Hardy versus DeCastro, what's your take? Okay, so Jorgen DeCastro, like you mentioned, he's definitely been the money train. I mean, I didn't have the grapes in my pants to pull the trigger on that Dana White's contender series fight, but all the props in the world for you and the other guys that backed him, that's just an outrageous price tag. And then he comes in the UFC and he keeps the train going, being Junior Taffa. And now he gets Greg Hardy. So you're getting, you're getting two polar opposites. You're getting Jorgen DeCastro, who is a massive, massive underdog against Alton Meeks, mm-hmm. to get a contract in the UFC potentially. Versus a guy that was never the public starling, but certainly the UFC and I guess American top team starling, and that they're super high on him. The result is that Hardy 
took on some, you know, some very good competition, I thought, and kind of faltered. Whereas his opponent, on the other hand, has done the complete opposite. He's taken on lowly level ranked opponents and he's mm-hmm. looked really good. And now people are higher up on him. So now we're getting a good price tag here. And I don't think Greg Hardy should be a minus 180 favorite. Both of them seem like they're young, developing green heavyweights. One guy's showing you in DeCastro that he's got a massive amount of power. And he's got a very, I don't want to say underrated because everyone's jumping on it now, but his leg kick game is nasty. Mm-hmm. So he demobilizes you. He causes you to make a stupid decision like the junior Tafa fight, and then he capitalizes you with that right hand. He seemingly, he's 6 0. I don't know how good his chin is because I haven't seen it tested, but he seems to have a lot of faith in his chin. Like, he don't mind sitting in the pocket and throwing one because he seems to just rely on the fact that I know I can take a punch and I know I can deliver probably a bigger one. The thing with Hardy here is that he's a great athlete, and whereas he hasn't looked particularly great. In the UFC, like the Alan Crowder fight, he looked fucking awful. His two wins beyond that, Smolyakov and Adams, it's like it's the same thing as DeCastro. He really is fighting like a very low level. I thought Juan Adams would be a lot better than he was, but like in hindsight, it's low level. Ben Sassoli, the fact that he couldn't knock him out, maybe his power's not as good as we thought. It's the going five rounds with Alexander Volkov on like a week's notice. Like he knew he fucked up with the puffer thing. He jumps right back into that fight three weeks later, goes all the way to Russia to fight Volkov. Goes five rounds, did not look good, man. But to me, that showed like, ah, uh, this this guy that was, that is was still three, developing. That was three by five rounds, though. Oh, that's right. You're right. You're 100 percent right. It was they switched it to three because he was coming in massively short notice. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Who knows how it would have played out if it gone longer? I mean, obviously he's going to have those puffer problems. If he needs a puffer, then maybe he wouldn't be able to fight five anyways. I just feel like the natural athleticism. He's going to be faster than DeCastro. Is a little more plodding, and I feel like being with ATT, even though the uncertainty of training camps and how's this guy getting ready and all these different things, he's one of those guys that's largely benefited from the fact that he's a multi-million. So he, you know he has a home gym. You know he has aides that are coming down. You know he has people, trading partners that are willing to set aside because he's kind of more of a he, – he, he's like more of an object, right? It's like, man, there's money to be made here. This guy has fun. You know, he can fund himself a training camp. I would feel like being with ATT and them having the game plan of you don't want to stand and bang with this guy. He's going to be slower. He's not as rangy as Volkov. That was one problem he had with Volkov. The Crowder fight, I don't know what the hell happened. It's just like he thought he was going to knock Crowder out. When he hit him with a few shots, he didn't go out. Shit went sideways for me. He got himself DQ'd. <clears throat> but again, I feel like even though he's not the youngest guy because he's you know completed a full career of professional football, at 31 years old, given how little experience he has, only eight professional fights, one's got to think that this guy's not just completely a busted prospect just yet. He's an absolute specimen. Weighs in at 265. That's him cutting 265. He's six foot five with an 80 with an 80 inch reach. And he moves like the wind. So he's got all of that. Now he needs to add the I'm a legitimate fighter aspect to his game. And I feel like he is slowly, but he's moving in that direction. Castro is a fighter. We know that. It's the natural athleticism part that he struggles with. And that's not something I don't think he's going to be able to just – he's not going to be able to bridge that gap. You don't suddenly just become a great athlete. So, you know what? I, I don't love the price tag. I really don't. And I'd love to just ride that Jorgen DeCastro money train one more time. But I got a feeling that this isn't the most exciting fight out there. DeCastro doesn't land that big haymaker in the first few rounds. And it's going to be Greg Hardy fighting a smart game plan, staying on the outside, using that length, just touching this guy up and uh, cruising to a decision. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. I think the biggest misconception about Hardy, and you didn't say it. I'm saying, like, out there, the biggest misconception about him is that like, yeah, that all of his fights are going to be like first round smash jobs? No, I don't think so at all. As you were talking about, he's he's a guy who has very very good cardio and mobility for a heavyweight. We saw that in the Volkov fight. The fact that the fact that he was able to fight against a bit of a longer fighter like that, and then all of his other ones, he kind of 
takes his time. I know, like, the early, like, Dana White Contender Series fights, he just went in there because the level of competition was so low, he was able to just run right through those guys. But as we get a little bit higher up, it seems to be, you know, he wants to be a guy who's fighting that range, and then he'll close the show if he thinks he's got you hurt. I do think he could probably keep hard, or he could keep Jorgen on the outside. I would never, ever, ever lay minus 180 on Greg Hardy in this spot. Uh, haven't decided yet if I'm going to continue betting on Jorgen. I haven't. I bet on him every single time, and he's uh, he's came through for me. So I may be a little bit biased, but if I'm going to end up anywhere here, it's going to be on the underdog. I just think he is the better striker, a little little bit more refined at this stage in his career. Um, I don't know about his gas tank and all of that, but he definitely has the more cleaner knockout ability. That's for sure. I just don't know if he. Greg Hardy, I think, has proven that he's able to take some punishment interesting fight all around um but it'll be dog or pass for me at least a week out we're gonna have a more formal show next week where we can go through a bunch of more things in detail um let's jump down um any let's rifle through some of these ones here um and got yeah anybody second show what's that I said, yeah, yeah, we can we can pass right through because we're going to do a second show. Anyway. Yeah, we're going to get a lot more deep into all of these. But, like, Ngannou versus Rosenstrike. Um, listen, Frankie Murder's my boy. So if you think I'm going to sit here and tell you that Rosenstrike has even even a chance in this fight, you got another thing coming. What about the death touch, Paul? The death touch. I mean, he... Uh, we f- I-, I faded him. I had a massive parlay that like he ended up breaking my goddamn heart that day. With over him at the end, and I was just like, you know what? <laughs> We're so hot right now. I didn't even, and I was just like counting the money basically right up into the moment that his face exploded. Um, that that is obviously worrisome. If you hit somebody and your face explodes like that, that is problematic. But it was literally like he was uh, what two seconds away from losing that fight. Against Alistair Overeem, a guy who Francis Ngannou sent that guy's head into the moon. Rosenstrike's never lost before. Yeah. Well, he's never fought Francis Ngannou before. You know who's... They both got the death touch, but Frankie Murder is a whole different specimen. And I think losing to Stipe, fighting some, coming to grips with some of those things like he did in the uh, Lewis fight, where it's just like building his confidence back. Um, uh, laying minus 260 on a heavyweight is, of course... The major issue here, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Francis just box him up from the outside and win by decision. Like I, that I think that's in the arsenal for this guy. Um, but yeah, I'm. It'll be a cold day in Missouri before I ever pick against my boy uh, Francis Ngannou. What about you? Yeah, I guess I guess the worry just comes back to the Derek Lewis fight. Is that Lewis was the I want to say the first guy that presented the real power threat. I mean, he'd already beaten Alistair Overeem, but really, when you think about it, there was something to worry about Lewis. Like, man, he's just going to stand there, wait for you to come to him, and just throw a big old haymaker. And for whatever reason, Francis didn't want to pull the trigger at all. Yeah, the Curtis Blades fight, the Cain Velasquez fight, the Junior DeSantos fight, they're all first-round knockouts. And by the way, it's not even just He's knocking these guys out in the first round. These guys aren't shot, man. Curtis Blades is one, a future title contender. Cain Velasquez blew out his knee. I get it, but it was the punch that blew out his knee. And he's still considered one of the greatest of all time. And Junior is a gatekeeper at this point, but he's a very solid gatekeeper. He buzzsaws through these people. So, yeah, on that sense, he's back. But we don't know if he goes in there. He's watched the tape. You know, his coaching staff has told him, watch out for this right hand. Watch out for the death touch. Watch out for this big power. So he doesn't get in there and think 
I'm going to box from the outside. And listen, you know, you talked about the last fight with Greg Hardy mentioning a lot of people were talking about it's bang or bust. This guy's got to knock you out. <clears throat> For instance, I feel like a lot of people say the same thing. This guy's got to knock you out. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just like you're saying. He could just box him up from the outside, not take the risks, but he is a better technical boxer. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that being, if he just, he's more mobile, he's a faster fighter. He stays on the outside, uses his jab sets up that right hand, uses the right hand to kind of scare him into also, because here's the thing with Rosenstruck, it's not like he's a straight killer as well. Like, like he's not above also getting gunshine staring at you. The Alistair Overeem fight, even though I had a 2-2 going into the fifth and thought Overeem was going to lose regardless, everybody had a 3-1. I mean, Rosenstruck literally had four more seconds to finish that fight or he was going to lose. And when you watch back on that fight, there's a lot of him not doing anything. He stands there and he waits. Now he's maybe afraid of the takedown. He's maybe afraid of a few other things. But it's that he doesn't let his hands go, even when Alistair Overeem is clearly, clearly hurt, clearly fatigued, clearly dazed. He just he waits, he waits, he waits. He almost waited too long, but he landed the big knockout. <clears throat> that big knockout, it's a highlight reel knockout. That big knockout keeps his undefeated record intact at 10-0. That keeps the momentum going. But again, when I'm looking at tape of both guys, I, I see future world title uh, champion in Francis mm-hmm. Ngannou. I see a guy in Yarazino Rosenstruck who's fun, who's going to have a lot of fun fight with you know, other mid-pack to upper mid-pack heavyweights. But again, he's very limited. I mean, he does have that big power, but that's about all he has. He comes from a very credited kickboxing background, but when you see him in there, like he has nice leg kicks and he's got the big power, <clears throat> but he doesn't look clean. He doesn't look precise. He doesn't look like somebody who is extremely competent and, and as a high-level kickboxer, the way an Alistair Overeem. He's just a guy that competes a lot, knocked out a lot of guys. So if I think this is not going to hit the ground, I don't think he's going to hit the ground. We've got a competent kickboxer in Rosenstruck against a more refined, polished boxer in in Francis Ngannou. And honestly, if Rosenstruck tries to throw the kick, maybe that's where he's going to get countered. Maybe once he gets countered, he stops throwing the kick. And if he stops throwing the kick, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. But mm-hmm. honestly, it, it's it's Ngannou all day. The one thing is, and you, you hit it. It's like, oh man, price tag yeah, for heavy two guys weights, with that amount of power. Is, yeah. Yep. And we always say middling heavyweights, middling heavyweights. They say middling heavyweights. This no. is top heavyweights. But they're, they're, if, I told, if I put you on the spot, and you're always really quick with this shit, but if I, if I put you on the spot and I was like, who's the biggest power puncher in the heavyweight division? You'd be like, Francis Ngannou. If I was like, who's the second biggest power puncher in the heavyweight division? You'd be like, Rosenstruck. So, okay, they're both now fighting each other, and we're supposed to pay a, that big of a price tag. Like, again, this goes back to, I know we skipped over it, and I'll just touch on it for like two seconds, literally. But it goes back to... Uh, or it goes back to Vincente Luque versus Nico Price. Vincente Luque is a far better fighter in almost every aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to pay 260 on a guy who is hittable and can get hurt, taking on a guy who, for whatever reason, it's like he too embodies the touch of death. The difference is Rosenstruck is a heavy 265 pound heavyweight, and Nico Price is a welterweight white boy. And he fucking hits very, very hard, and that that becomes the issue. Is that if you're looking to just tail a dog who's got an outrageous, uh, an outrageous price on him, that's got, you know, he's got some goods, he's got an ability to win this fight, then it is Nico. When I look at the tape, though, it doesn't even seem like it'll be competitive. It'll be Nico getting fucked up versus Vincente Luque, who's just a lot sharper. The problem there is, is that Vincente does tend to open himself up, and and then he could get priced, now, or that he could get caught. Now, mind you, they have fought before. I thought it was a good fight. I thought it was Vincente Luque showing off how much well-rounded of a martial artist he was and eventually getting that second-round Dars choke over Nico Price. 
the difference is that he was a minus 135 on that night. Very stomach, very easy to back him on that. Now you're looking at him in this spot, and it's like, okay, man, I don't want to end up paying uh, a price tag, which is probably going to end up going a little higher than uh, its current standing, which is just to see what refreshed at, is uh, 245, Luke. So it's like, man, he's, he's over 100 points different from the last time. And giving all of these different circumstances given all the training camp and the you know oh is this card happening is this card not happening a guy with that amount of power that can just shock the world is going to be even more effective so it's not that i don't like luke i think he's a much better fighter he's more tactically should get the win it's not that i don't like francis and i think he's a better fighter you should get the win is that the price tag is a little bit steep that whereas we say dog or pass i'm not i'm not going with the dog in this slot I'm kind of leaning towards pass unless I can get a slightly better price. Or, you know, we'll talk about this on the next show. You want to get dirty. You want to start parlaying up. You want to take a little <laughs> little risk to get a little action. It's like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to be betting these guys. Um, we're, I'm just trying to give you the smart lay of the land here is that it's not a good price tag. Yeah, I kind of yeah, – I, I understand where you're coming from there. I kind of think that Luke is going to be winning this fight every single second up until the point that he potentially loses, like – until he gets hit. By, yeah, like, yeah, by no, like a toe stab. Like, it'll be like a toe stab from bottom or something like that. And he'll just yeah, wilt. Yeah, so, and you'll be like, what the yeah, fuck? Yeah. Like, like he, had, he had every single second of it. It's just Nico Price is one of those guys. And I've learned to, like, not – yeah, you don't really want to fade uh, Nico Price when you're paying big price like this because uh, – yeah, because he just he he finds crazy ways to win. Like it's happened over and over. Eventually, All right. You just have to respect the fact that in certain moments, like he he can put anyone's lights out. Yeah, and then and then I think you come back to again. Yes, yes, they did already fight. However, who are the two guys that really give incentive? Luke, one hell of a scare is Brian Barberina yep. and Mike Perry of all people, eh? But it's like those guys actually fight pretty similar to Nico Price. Mm-hmm. And then it's like if you can survive long enough, and the last time he got choked out, this time he's going to have to survive a little longer. He's going to have to get into those later rounds. But those guys both had increasingly amounts of success with him as he becomes more and more hittable if you can prolong the fight. And if Price is able to now prolong that fight, and he's got – I can't say he's got – he's definitely got more power than Brian Barberine. Does he have more power than Mike Perry? I'm going to say so, yeah. Perry does hit very hard. I will give him that. But so yeah, I mean, he he could definitely make this interesting, and because he has got that kind of price tag, you don't have some massive expectation of him. Oh, he's gonna he's a lock. He's gonna win for sure. It's like, hey, this guy needs to make this greasy, make this dirty, and he's got the tools to do it. So even though it's a rematch, and the last one didn't seem overly competitive, rewatch it. Price Price can have some moments here for sure. Uh, any other fights on the card that jump out at you from an odds perspective? Uh, fights that you want to get on, you want to get. Um action too before you think that the line is going to steam like um like for me i'm not gonna lie for me it's kind of like even though this fight you know dana's telling us this fight's gonna happen they've they're going to more like i know that there's so many crazy things that could happen in the next week or so that could just make that not happen um obviously we're just going day by day right now so I don't know if I'm locking up too much money, but certain odds you're probably going to have to lock in a little bit earlier than you think, than, than knowing when the event's going to start, just because some of these lines probably wouldn't hang around for too long. But yeah, is there anything else on the card that, uh, that jumps out at you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think, as you mentioned, some of the fights actually just kind of got added. So I think that given a little bit of time, it's like, something could change two of the fights that i'm looking at right off the hop is uh, ray borg versus marlon vera ray mm-hmm. borg 
oh man, he really blew it for me on that weigh-in bet we had a month ago. It's like now he's back at 135. So it's like even though the fight is relatively short notice and all this and that and all these different things, it's like at 135, he's missed weight at 135 as well, by the way. He should be a little bit better. We've seen him compete at 135 before. You know, it didn't look great, but also he's still got the takedowns. He's still strong. It's that he's not that, like, chain wrestler guy that just goes, goes, goes. It's a little bit different version of the flyweight version of Ray Borg. But, like, what is the flyweight version of Ray Borg? Have we seen it? Motherfucker never makes weight anyway. So it's like, who knows? He's the 127.4-pound fucking king of the world, right? But here's the thing with Marlon Vera. Marlon Vera is making a lot of improvements. Marlon Vera's takedown defense is practically non-existent. This is a guy that works a lot on his wrestling. But what happens is he gets taken down fucking all the time. And because he's fighting such low-level guys, he throws mm-hmm. up submissions and he's submitting them. Ray Borg ain't here to get submitted, man. He's got nasty Ew. top control. And that's the big problem here is that he can be had right now at minus 130 against Marlon Vera. So it's a near-even money fight. Yes, he's a favorite, but it's a pretty well-matched fight in that regard in terms of the line. And uh, I just see it playing out very straightforward. Ray Borg goes in. They're going to exchange a little bit on the feet. Uh, Verrett does not have the power to stop Borg. And Borg's eventually just going to come in, get a hold of him, peel him to the ground. We were The last fight, again, he misses weight. And everyone's talking about, oh, you know, his opponent, he's, just, he, he's a little tank and he's got great submissions. It's like, dude, it wasn't even competitive. Is Borg at his best? Very, very strong. Now, I, go, I know he's going up to 135, but they're not giving him a strong 135. They're giving him a rangy 135. The and funny I think those thing, are the guys he's going to have his most success against. The funny thing about it is that it opened up like it opened up at like minus one fifty five, minus one seventy five in a bunch of books, and action has actually been coming in on Marlon Vera. Surprisingly enough, I guess due to the crisis, I think that may be the mentality of people. The crisis situation. This is the guy who. Um, I mean, he's he's put up with a whole bunch of shit. I'm not going to take any shots there. Um, I, I don't know. Action seems to be coming in on Vera. But, yeah, I, I like Borg as well. Um, yeah, I think his style just fits like a glove in this type of situ- – or in this fight specifically. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely think that it's his style that's going to be the big thing. The other thing is that sometimes I give it a little too much credit maybe maybe it's not a real point but it's something that i uh, i always keep in mind is that ray borg has had all those cancellations he's had the weight cutting issues he's had the the family issues with you know his son having medical problems he's had you know a motherfucking dolly went through a window cut him pulled him out of a fight like he's had a definitely a, a rough stretch over the last couple of years but ali abdel aziz has put this guy has put his name on him and said yeah i'm with borg and uh, you know this kid's a talented kid and he's gonna get back on top of the world and i'm committed to doing whatever possible to make to facilitating that when you look at some of the fights that he's been getting booked it's like it looks like they are trying to do borg a favor they're giving him good fights they're paying him well uh they're giving him opportunity borg's not the kind of guy because he has the weight cutting issues and all that he's not the kind of guy that just jumps off the couch and takes a fight on two weeks notice it's ali got him this fight and so he's got the information that we don't he would know borg's in good shape he would know borg's ready to go he would know that this is a favorable match Borg. Otherwise, he's not going to risk his client. I mean, he's making money off this guy, but also it's like he's looking out for him. And then you go back to Marlon Vera, right? Marlon Vera has had the extreme fortunate. Look at his five fight winning streak, right? Mm-hmm. Uji Buren cut, Guido Canetti cut, Frankie Science cut, Noeline Hernandez cut, and Andre Ugo should be cut, but fucking Rob Johnson Martinez his last time out, and so now he's still got a job. None of those guys are even remotely near the level of Ray Borg, both talent wise. But but beyond that, none of those guys are even on Ray Borg's level skill wise. Like Wuji Buren's a striker, had him in some fucking tough spots. Guido Canetti had him in some tough spots. 
Uh, it, Noah Lee Hernandez had him in some tough spots. Like, what's going to happen when those tough spots now occur and you've got Ray Borg on you, who doesn't have a history of being submitted, who doesn't have a history of tiring it, who doesn't have a history? Like, I, I just think it's all being set up for Borg to pull one off. Yes, technically speaking, Marlon Vera is uh, very close to Tachi. Uh, he's a Colorado Yama guy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they've always got guys on the card, but that's not going to matter. There's no, there's no hometown advantage here, I don't think. And I don't think that the travel for Borg coming from New Mexico uh, going to California is going to somehow zap him. So, so he's definitely one at minus 130 I'm looking at. I just want to touch on another point you made really quick there about how the line actually opened a lot better for Borg. Not better for us, but it opened at 55 for Borg. We're getting a better price now. But mm-hmm. money's actually been coming in the other way. I almost feel like that's a case of these fights got added late. And so the line was still easy to, to maneuver, and people were just taking that shot on the dog saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think this is an appropriate price tag. When Michael Johnson got announced against Kama Worthy, Michael mm-hmm. Johnson should absolutely run right through this guy. Yes, Michael Johnson has looked absolutely abysmal as of late, has not looked like the same guy. And you can't just write off Kama Worthy and say, hey, Michael Johnson's back. But it was the 270 price tag that was causing me to sink those things. It's now dropped to 220 for Michael Johnson. <laughs> Way more digestible now. Uh, I, I can't fully get behind Kama Worthy, who pulled a big upset <clears throat> in his UC debut to suddenly become everyone's darling. It's, the thing is, is that me and you are way ahead of that one. See, we had Devontae Smith to get upset by Clay Collard, right? And even yeah. though he's like a 4-1 to favorite, it, this guy doesn't have great cardio. He's hittable. We don't know about his chin. Lots of lots of green areas to be exposed, and Clay Collard's being overlooked. The fight got canceled literally like three days out. We had recorded our show, so we never gave a, t- a, a take on the Commonworthy situation. But we had straight out faded Devonte Smith. Commonworthy ended up being the beneficiary of that. But again, you look back at his record, and that's where it becomes problem. So he lost to Kyle Nelson, also now in the UFC. Lost in a minute and three seconds. He was knocked down in the first uh, Burlington Training Center BTC One Genesis. He was also knocked out by Anthony Redditch, who was a journeyman. By one minute and six seconds into the first round, Matt Bissette knocked him out. That was in the second round. Billy Cantillo, my boy, 10 seconds in the second round. How does that happen? Paul Felder knocked him out. That one lasted a minute and 10 seconds. So what I'm saying is he's been knocked out five times, and all of them, you know, four of them was in the first round, and the one that made it to the second round lasted 10 seconds into the second round. He doesn't have a very good chin. He's 33 years old, and what happened was he took a fight in the UFC on three days' notice, and happened to catch a guy who was there to be caught. Now we got Michael Johnson, who's literally been in there with everybody. And mind you, he looks bad these days. He does. The big power that put him on the map, being able to touch guys and fold them away, hey, only guy to land a clean punch on Khabib. This guy rocked Justin Gaethje. The power is there. You know, the knockout was, he knocked out Justin Poirier. It was like fucking a hot knife through butter, man. It was like, holy shit. Then he goes to 45, he lost the power. Now he's back at 55, and, like, the power ain't there. It's that I'm not looking at him as, ah, oh, geez, he's 2-5 and five in, his, in, in his last seven fights. It's like, man, he beat Stevie Ray. I don't know why he lost the majority of decisions. He beat Stevie Ray. It was his shit ground game cost him in the second round, and he, or in the third round, and he should have been up two anyways. But we know Michael Johnson doesn't have a great ga- ground game. And then and there's where I think he takes out Kama Worthy. He's like, Kama Worthy is known as a banger as well. He's not known for this particularly good ground game. We talk about Michael Johnson getting a little bit older at 33. Kama Worthy is also 33. These guys aren't mere images of each other. It's like Michael Johnson is just the more talented. He's a better wrestler, better striker, better cardio, uh, better experience, fought at the highest level, fought the best guys. I just mentioned, he fought Khabib. He fought Justin Poirier. He's fought in absolutely the best guys in the world, Justin Gaethje, all, all title challengers, former champions, 
We fought Nate Diaz, fought Benil Darius, smashed, absolutely smashed Edson Barbosa. Like, we're talking about him fighting those guys, and now he's fighting comma worthy, and money's coming in on worthy. Great, because I didn't want to bet Johnson at 270 in case he is all the way shot. There's a possibility mm-hmm. Saturday or come fight time, whenever the hell this thing actually goes down, hopefully it does go down. Come fight day, we're really going to know. Johnson's 19 and 50. This is the end of the road. He just lost to Stevie Ray, who was also near the end of the road. He, he, this is a pink slip fight from Uncle Johnson. It's either this or Bellator, and we all know he wants to be here. But I think, I think that's going to cause him to show up, and they've given him a very appropriate opponent for him in order to, to come in and do that. And then, and then, I haven't done a greasy theory in a while, so fuck Ooh, it, let's do greasy let's hear theory it. here. Yeah, so Michael Johnson was initially preparing to fight Evan Dunham, right? That was going to be on US, on ESPN plus 31. So, okay. I mean, he's had a full training camp, and he was training to take on a better guy than Kama Worthy. So just know right off the bat, it's like, okay, Michael Johnson is not going to show up in shit shape. Here's where the greasy theory comes into play, is that Kama Worthy is also not on short note. He was initially in, on this card, 249, to take on Otman Azatar. Otman Azatar yeah. is the fella from Morocco, who is all the way fucking set up with the UFC. Uh, they gave him Timu Pakalin off a two-year layoff in his debut. He smoked right through. They, they, he is such a big, famous figure over there. The president, the prince of Morocco, <clears throat> loves this guy and his brother. The, like, he was, he was coming in, and they were giving him the absolute perfect opponent. Now, if you've ever watched Azatar, he is just power personified in the first round. He just goes out and blasts you in the first round. They matched him up with Kama Worthy, whose one problem has happened to be he tends to get blasted out early in the first round. Yep. He was being set up to come in and lose, yep. and because Azatar couldn't get the visa, they decided, you know what, fuck it, Johnson needs the win too. His well, Azatar, off, and, Azatar, and Azatar was training with Habib, and then when these things started to r- ramp up, he knew that he would. He, he basically wanted to go home as well, just in case he wasn't able to get back home. So he he kind of left with like around or maybe he, I think he left like a couple days before Habib and and his crew left. But yeah, if you I, w- I was on his Instagram and it looked like he had left like on like the twelfth or thirteenth and headed back home because obviously everything was going nutso. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, so yeah, Worthy was in place for a squash match essentially. So he, now he Michael there, Michael Johnson's to- coming in to get a little taste of that squash match. Well, that, that's that's the thought process here. Is like now Michael Johnson steps in and he steps in at 270 because oddsmaker, just like you and I are talking about right now. Ah, oh, fuck, Johnson inherits the squash match. Here you go. But now it's the betters that say, ah, oh, Johnson hasn't looked good in a long time. Ah, oh, he just lost to Stevie Ray. Fuck, man, he didn't look good in that last round against Stevie Ray. Ah, oh, hey, geez, it's common worthy. He cashed big as the underdog his last time out. Don't overlook this guy. He cashed big the last time out. It's like, I, I, I get it. But, like, he cashed big because he caught Devontae Smith, right? Whereas you've got Michael Johnson, who's, like, gone around with Nicky Holtzkin, you know? Like, he's, he's held his own against the absolute best guys in the world, both in the octagon and, and in the gym. And he still continues to train with guys on this card, such as Vicente Luque. Like, he, he's going to be in good shape. He's going to be ready to roll. And I think that's where Kamalwardi's going to get himself into a little bit of trouble. So <clears throat> we'll have some final points, obviously, when we do the final uh, wrap-up show. But just a line to keep in mind. If it keeps coming down lower, yeah, by all means. If it starts to go the other way, it's like maybe I'm going to start – well, maybe you should start uh, banking on it real early. And then just before we roll on, uh, not sure if money – it looks like money's going to keep rolling in. When I was looking at Uriah Hall at the beginning of the week, mm-hmm. like plus 140. I see now he's plus 125. Again, that one's going to require a little more tape research, but – 
when, when we're talking about recency bias and maybe people saying Michael Johnson's recency bias, again, when you watch those fights, he does have some moments. I'm not seeing the moments with Jacare. That's where I think he is almost completely blown to bits. He didn't look good against Weidman before getting that third-round finish. It's the subsequent fight against Jack Hermanson and Jan Blockowitz, the latter of which he moved up to 205 pounds, lost a split. But I just feel like this is a guy that's searching for a lot of things. You know, He's moved around to half a dozen different gyms over the last couple of years. He finally settles in Orlando. Uh, by the way, that gym is, is in a strip mall. Well, it's closed now. So where has he been training? What's he been doing to get ready? I don't know. He's 40 years old. He's now taking this fight. He's now dropping back down to 185. And it's just a case of Uriah Hall. I can't say he's been a money train, but he is one of those guys where it's like when, when you do count him out, it's like when he does shine. And his last two fights being Bavon Lewis and Antonio Carlos Jr. Listen, he's the underdog both times. And the junior fight he shows you, his takedown defense is getting a lot better. And his submission defense, it's getting a lot better. And if you can't take this guy down and you're forced to stand with him, maybe you beat him, sure. But it's like danger is imminent at all times. And maybe that's going to be a problem for Jacare. Is that Jacare loves his stand-up? He's fallen in love with his stand-up. But his stand-up's pretty stiff. If he decides to fall stiff. in love with his, it is stiff. It's stiff, and it's open to get countered. And you don't want to get countered by a guy with big power like with like uh, Uriah Hall. Jacare has been stunned. He's not getting knocked out, but yes, you could hurt this guy. We've seen him hurt a number of times. Obviously, uh, the Kelvin Gaslam fight, uh, Jack Hermanson fight, the Block would seem to have him hurt. Uh, Robert Whitaker knocked him out. So it's like all of that is on the table. <clears throat> I just see Jacare having a great first round, coming in there, holding him against the cage, maybe gets that takedown. It's that if, just similar to Antonio Carlos Jr. If he doesn't get that first round finish, does he get a better gas tank than ACJ? No, he doesn't. He's got a similar, if not worse, gas tank than ACJ. And if he, similar to Antonio Carlos Jr., if the wheels start to fall off for him and he starts to slow down, that's when he's going to be susceptible for that counter. Listen, I never bet Hall ever unless you get a decent dog price. Plus 140 was a decent enough dog price. Plus 125 is obviously becoming less and less desirable as the day yeah. comes. But uh, just again, another line to potentially monitor in terms of dog value money and, and all that. Yeah. I'm not in love with it, but it's still, yeah, it's, it's super. it's super early. Usually, obviously, we're not even really – placing wagers on a, a on a fight card this far out um and a lot can change in between now and when we do i guess it was advertised by our friend pat mayo as being some sort of like super mega show or something like that i mean me and cody are just gonna roll in here and kind of just talk about fights how we usually do i don't know if there's gonna for anybody who listens every single week it'll be the exact same thing just us going through every single fight um from a odds perspective and then transferring over to DraftKings at the end we didn't even talk about DraftKings right now because I think it's so it's super early right now uh people are going to drop out things are going to change potentially and um and yeah it's better for us to wait until next week to kind of have a better understanding of where we think ownership and all that good stuff is going to land uh any final thoughts before we head out of here Cody no, I mean, yeah, <clears throat> tune in to uh, the show later in the week, obviously. I don't know if we're still doing DK prize giveaways and all that from the last episode. Obviously, just a lot of stuff, moving parts. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting for DraftKings, just considering, and we haven't run through all those fights, but we'll talk about them next time. But Ryan Spann, he's a 380 favorite, right? Eubanks is a 355 favorite. Michael Johnson, he was 270, 220 now. Uh, Alexander Hernandez, 240. Francis Ngannou, 270. Calvin Cater, 235. Intended Luke at 255. Like, there's going to be a lot of chalk in this card. So it's going to be finding those dogs with a chance that are going to give us some value. And of course, if you can bank on a guy like Ray Borg, who will probably come in about, I'm going to say that's 8,200, 8,000. 
you know, a, a mid-plate guy like that, if he's going to get you a lot of takedowns and some good transitional uh, ground and pound transitions on the ground, all, all that, maybe a guy like that becomes even more valuable. But, yeah, looking forward to breaking it down with you, brother. All right, that is it for us. Hope you enjoyed the show again, like probably next week. It may actually be a little bit earlier than usual. Usually we drop on Thursday mornings, but there's really not a hell of a lot else going on right now. So it could be a Tuesday, Wednesday drop. I'll uh, keep everyone posted on social media. You can follow our podcast at Dog or Pass Podcast. You can, or Dog or Pass Pod, at Dog or Pass Pod. You can follow Cody Saftik at CJ Saftik. You can follow me at Paul Shag. For Cody, I am Paul saying goodbye and good luck. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.